The town of Purdue Bay was about as far north as a person could go before they hit the pole. Out on Dalton Highway, the welcoming sign boasted a permanent population of five. If it wasn't for the oil fields, the town probably would have gone bust. Either way, it wasn't much to look at. Just a couple of makeshift buildings and snow as far as the eye could see. The local watering hole fit right in. It looked more like an abandoned tool shed rather than a place that sold spirits. Over the years, patrons had torn the insides out of some of the chairs, left knife marks on the edge of the bar, and no one had bothered to fix the large broken mirror that spanned the back wall behind the bottles of alcohol. Paul took a seat on one of the stools by the counter. Staring at the broken mirror, he wondered if the owner constantly had to restart his seven years of bad luck. Or was it whoever looked at a broken mirror got seven years bad luck? He decided not to ask. This place was for the straight face. There were three burly men sitting at a corner table, sucking back shots. The only audible thing he could hear from their animated conversation was the bearded one saying, there was blood everywhere. Standing to Paul's left were two local boys haggling with the bartender over the 10 cent increase for a Budweiser. Both had pale, shiny cheeks, as if the alcohol made them constantly sweat to ease dehydration. Willie, a wiry fellow with a weasel face, shoved his hand in a bowl of salted nuts and tossed a couple in his mouth. Now he's extorting us. How much these goobers cost? Mitch, his cohort with the pot belly and heavy jaw, shook his head. A dollar for a bud? Why don't I lay on this bar so you can ass rape me? Why don't you take your sorry selves down to Dead Horse where it's three bucks for a bud? The bartender turned his attention to Paul. What can I get you? I like one of those buds and a fifth of whiskey to go. Well, I ain't supposed to let booze leave the premises, but how about I give you a bottle and you throw a little extra on the tip? The bartender scrounged around under the table and a few moments later placed a brown bag and beer on the counter. That'll be six dollars. Paul tossed a ten on the bar. Keep the change. Mitch threw up his hands in the air. Now he's extorting this guy. Mm-hmm, Willie added. That there's cheap hoochie thrown in a bag. Only worth three bucks. And there ain't no law says he can't sell you spirits, Mitch added. Doesn't matter to me. I just want a drink. Paul took a long swig from the bottle and sighed as he set it back down. With the amount of shifts he'd been picking up lately, a few dollars here and there didn't matter. How long they had you cooped up out there, Willie asked. Three months. Paul swirled the beer around in his bottle, watching the foam splash against the sides. If he'd known about this place a couple weeks ago, he might have taken some time off sooner. Nothing beat a beer to make him forget he was stuck working on an oil rig for the next 21 months. And he figured after he drank a bit of the whiskey, he might even think he'd made the right decision when he signed the contract. The truth of the matter was he'd never found his calling, never figured out what he wanted or what he was good at. For the past six years, he'd wandered from one meaningless job to the next, hoping he'd figure it out, but nothing ever changed. He just felt more and more like his insides were slowly being siphoned out. 
Paul hunched farther over the counter and tried to make his mind go blank. But Willie's yapping made that hard to do. Every few months we get a couple of you boys in here thinking you're back in civilization. Paul nodded, although he didn't have any idea what Willie was getting at. I bet you come in here thinking, I'm back, time for a bottle and a whore. Wasn't that what you was thinking? You wanted yourself a woman, didn't you, boy? Paul thought to himself. What he really wanted was the two of them to shut up so he could relax with his beer and stare at his cracked reflection. They didn't have any mirrors on the rig. They only had stainless steel panes over the sink, which you could barely use for shaving. No beer's enough for me, he said. Good, Willie said, chuckling, because there ain't no woman in Purdue. Mitch slapped his hand against the counter and let out a laugh that sounded more like a cough. Now dead horse, Willie continued. That's another story. Go on down to the orange weasel. Paul unscrewed the whiskey cap and took a long draw on the bottle while checking the tables behind him in the mirror. Would it seem offensive if he excused himself and sat in the corner booth? The group of three customers had left without him noticing, and from his survey of the reflection, they had been replaced by a single man. Back home in Big Sky, the man wouldn't have seemed out of place. Paul's town was filled with timeshare owners who flew in from New York for one-week mountain holidays. But here the man's black suit and polished leather shoes seemed odd, especially when compared to Mitch's red and black checkered jacket and Willie's elk-skin cap with woolly flaps covering the ears. He suddenly felt rude staring and moved his lingering gaze away from the man who looked to be meticulously making entries in a ledger book. Is that the owner, he asked Willie, subtly pointing with his elbow. That there's Mr. Krugel. Is this his bar? Willie floundered through a series of errs and uhs until Mitch leaned over the bar and said, He ain't the owner. Who owns it then? Paul looked between the two good old boys for an answer. Mitch turned his head, looking in the opposite direction. Willie poured beer down his throat until the empty bottle rattled against his teeth. The bartender didn't seem to want to give any insight either. He slunk away to wipe down the far end of the counter. Paul didn't care who owned the place. He was just trying to make polite conversation while he passed the time. Still, the restless silence made him uneasy. He turned away from them and focused on the mirror. Luckily, the whiskey was beginning to do its charm. For the first time in months, the emptiness he carried around in his gut didn't feel as heavy. He downed his beer in one gulp, and had just made the decision to leave when Willie shouted across the room, We gotta show him! Mr. Krugel's eyes swept across the room to where Paul was standing by the bar. What? I thought we could show him! Willie backed up, tripping over his feet as Mr. Krugel stood. Paul took his whiskey off the counter and edged away. There was an air of menace about the man facing them. He seemed huge, although he couldn't have been more than six feet tall. Paul decided it wasn't his physical appearance that was daunting. It was the way he filled up the place with his being. His command of the room was undeniable, as if a part of him, which couldn't be seen, hovered over them in the rafters. The man's lips softened into a wry smile as Paul stepped cautiously towards the entrance. Lock up, we're going down. Before Paul had a chance to slip out into the cold gray world, the bartender maneuvered in front of him and placed a heavy wooden beam across the door. Willie put his arm over Paul's shoulder and guided him towards a hatch in the floor. Pulling it open, he revealed a ladder leading to a cellar.
The flames of a furnace lit the sandy walls below. It looked like something ancient lived there, like a tomb had been dug out and they were climbing into a place that housed an archaic king. Following the flashlight, it was evident they were in some sort of cave. Rock enclosed them on three sides, and the fourth barrier, a wooden door, creaked as the wind rushed off the arctic circle and crashed into it. On the far side of the cave, a large alcove had been chiseled out of the rock. Thick metal bars set in the stone separated it from the main room. Willie had obviously been down there before. He went straight for the metal rods and started beating his knuckles on them. Stand aside, Mr. Krugel said. Willie hacked a loogie on the ground before moving back so Paul could see. A pair of eyes at the far end of the cage stared out of the darkness. Mr. Krugel came up behind Paul and shined a mag light through the bars. Large wings flapped up as the beam broke the blackness and revealed a feathered head. It's our owl, Willie said, smacking his lips together with delight. Paul had never seen an owl up close, and this one was large enough that if it had been perched on the floor, it would have come up to his stomach. He looked through the bars at the beast's eyes, peering into what seemed like a flat surface of antiquated instinct. What does she eat, he asked. What does she eat, Willie repeated. He wants to know what she eats. Paul turned his gaze to Mr. Krugel, who was bending over a box on the floor by the stove. He couldn't make out what Krugel was holding because his back was to him, but he heard a faint purr. The whiskey burned as he took another swig. He coughed and grimaced. Mr. Krugel turned around and held up a small gray kitten by the nap of the neck. Feeding time for Alice, Willie sang. Why'd you name her Alice? That's her name, Willie said. That's what she's called. We're going to have to find another litter, Mitch said, pushing down the flaps of the box. There's only a few left. Got that one covered, Willie said. Janine's cat's expectin'. Mr. Krugel pulled open the metal gate and set the kitten on the floor. For you, Alice. Soon the beating of wings moved the stale air across Paul's face. The bee swooped down on her prey and ripped at the kitten's back. Tufts of fur flew up, but they were only play bites for the amusement of the onlookers. She had no plans of killing it quickly. She allowed the kitten to hiss and scamper on the cage while she tore at its coat. The beam of the flashlight followed the struggle. The kitten darted towards a gap in the bars. Willie shoved his boot in the hole, stopping the escape. Alice followed her victim across the cage and gorged on its head. When she looked up into the light, Paul saw the feathers around her beak were smeared with blood. He felt like he should say something, tell them what they were doing was wrong, but he couldn't stop watching her feed. Finally, after a few minutes, he heard himself ask, How often do you do this? Every Thursday, Mitch answered, staring straight ahead. Next week we're giving her a puppy. Willie banged his palms against the bars and howled as Alex pecked out the kitten's eyes. Paul felt his stomach rupture with sickness. He tried to blame it on the whiskey. He tried to tell himself, this happens all the time in the wild. Owls are predators. It's not like they were feeding a pagan god. A god who ravaged its prey in the night, seeking wisdom found in the blood and bones of others. It was only the almost human size of Alice that made her seem like a winged demon. The sounds of clawing on Carver could be heard coming from the box in the corner. Paul stared down at the sandy ground. 
This is all wrong, he thought. I should grab that box and make a run for it. But he didn't. Instead, he looked up at the owl again and felt his chest tingle as she cracked the kitten's neck. The feeling spread through his ribcage and down to his belly like a disease. It moved through his arms and legs until his toes curled. He turned away and slunk towards the ladder. As he grasped the rungs and climbed up, he realized why he felt so ashamed. Watching Alice had made him feel alive.